Hi, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show diving into all things related to policy analysis in international affairs. After a one-episode break, I'm back in the studio with my wonderful co-host, Mel. So, one episode under our belts. I don't know about you. I feel a little looser, a little less nervous. I'm, uh, I don't know, I'm kind of fitting into this whole podcast situation. I totally feel you, Mitch. I'm very much more comfortable, and I'm very excited for this episode. Excellent. Um, But uh, before we kind of jump into that, I mean, uh, how was your weekend? Yeah, it was uh, pretty good. I uh, hung out at a cottage in the Muskoka area, partook in a little family reunion. And so we had some great conversations, caught up. I got my first sunburn, so that was enjoyable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about you? What did you get up to this weekend? Um, Not a lot. I did a little what I would consider to be a little conditioning for softball season. So uh, I I will take this opportunity to give a shout out to Norman Batterson. I have still yet to have played a game they're actually playing right now <laughs> um but uh, i'm sure they're doing fine but one of these days guys i'll, I'll be there i promise um, but so yeah that was basically my weekend nice um so yeah we were having great conversations at the cottage and one of the things that came up was uh the euro cup which mm-hmm. has been happening this month um apparently a lot of surprises unexpected victories definitely with iceland yeah. um are you following any teams, Mitch? Are you watching games there? Uh, generally speaking, if Canada's not playing, I don't really watch. So I think that precludes me from Euro Cup. All right. That's fair. You know what? I, myself, am not following a particular team, but I do enjoy watching the football games. Um, I know watching Euro Cup and watching the World Cup, there's a lot of uh, rivalries. Uh, you can see are obvious, some building tensions between country to country. Um when you're watching the games there. It's amazing how (laughs) things in the sporting world, for example, can tie into uh, general themes in international relations. Because in fact, this week, uh, this week's episode, we're taking a look at the policy of detente. Now, for for those of you who are not up to date on your international relations vocabulary and perhaps don't have a French-English dictionary with you, when we talk about detente, what we're essentially talking about is the easing of hostility or strained relations um, between countries. I think if we look at the international environment right now, we're seeing a shift perhaps in the way that countries are relating with each other. I think even yesterday I was reading that Israel and Turkey just signed a deal to normalize relations. Those are two major countries. Um, And I think specifically today, what we want to look at are prime examples of of this policy of detente. So specifically Cuba and Iran. Right. So let's begin by providing a little bit of a background here. So let's start with Cuba-U.S. relations. The two have had a fairly tumultuous relationship. So bringing it back to 1959, this is when we had Fidel Castro and his group of revolutionaries uh, taking over the Cuban regime. So what this meant was increased trade with the Soviet Union, uh, the nationalization of U.S.-owned properties in Cuba, and also increased taxes on American imports. So, Mitch, as you can imagine, this would have been pretty upsetting for the U.S. Uh, So what did they do? Their reaction was to get rid of Cuban sugar imports, um, institute a ban on almost all exports to Cuba, and eventually set a full economic embargo, which included travel restrictions. Then, of course, we also had the Bay of Pigs invasion in uh, 1961, and the following year, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis, which uh, further was increasing or further increased the tensions between the two nations. And this was followed by a, a long period of trade restrictions and negotiations and proposals for um, political ultimatums to lift this embargo. Mitch, how much how much do you think uh, Cuba lost economically? Uh, from all these measures. Just throw out a guess there. I'm not trying to put you on the uh, spot. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're talking about decades here with the United States, the, the world's biggest market. I had hundreds of billions of dollars it would have to be. Right. Well, it was at least that much. It was estimated at about $1.12 trillion. So this was a heavy hit for Cuba economically. 
So at this point, you kind of think these ties between these two countries would be severed forever. But, but as many people know, a couple of years ago, 2014, we had the U.S. president and the Cuban president agree to restore diplomatic relations. So one of the results of this was the uh, exchange of jailed Cuban prisoners um, for a man named Rolando Saraf Trujillo. So if you don't know who this man was, um, he, he worked for the Cuban Intelligence Agency and uh, he was accused and convicted of spying for the U.S. So in 95, I believe he was given a 25-year sentence, but uh, he was actually released in 2014 because of this warming of relations. Um, so this was just in addition to an easing of restrictions of, for remittances, travel, and banking, and it also followed up with the opening of embassies in one another's capitals. Um, and to follow up, Obama did visit Cuba earlier this year, which was quite historical since it was the first uh, visit by a sitting president of the U.S. in over 85 years. Well, absolutely. And to, to shift now to the other example that we cited, so Iran, very topical um, as well. I think, um, contextually speaking, Iranian international relations, particularly with the United States, um, has followed a similar pattern in a sense of, of general coolness over the years, at least until recently anyway. Um, I think often when people think about Iranian-American relations, for better or for worse, um, if you've watched the movie Argo, for example, the, the hostage crisis in Iran and in the greater context of the Iranian revolution, um, that really, being a regime change, that really changed the relationship with Iran and the United States and by extent, uh, by extension, Iran and, and much of the Western world. And increasingly, uh, in the decades since, it's been a lot of focus has been placed on the nuclear program in Iran, um, which has included uranium enrichment, warhead design, and delivery systems. Uh, now, while Iran has defended its activities as peaceful and non-threatening, uh, I don't think those assurances have um, assuaged Western concerns. And, and in fact, according to the White House, until July 2015, the country had enough enriched uranium and centrifuges to create 10 bombs. So uh, with whether it's Israel or uh, the United States or other Western nations, there's been a, a great concern about the, the risk of having a nuclear Iran or Iran having nuclear capabilities. Um, and so in an effort to counter these developments, the UN, the US, and the European Union have imposed sanctions hitting Iran in many areas, particularly the energy sector. Um, and similar to Cuba, the financial costs or the, the lost revenue as a result of these sanctions has been in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, if we move a little bit forward now to July of 2015, uh, we had a, a monumental signing of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, otherwise known as the Iran Deal, uh, which uh, was between the European Union, Iran, and the P5 plus one, so the Permanent Five of the Security Council, China, France, Russia, the UK, uh, United States of America and plus one Germany. So this this deal was signed by all of these parties to lift nuclear related sanctions on Iran in exchange for uh, a scaling back of Iran's nuclear program uh, and also the acceptance of third party monitoring, inspection, verification to make sure Iran is actually scaling back what it's supposed to be scaling back. Um, as a result of this deal, Iran's ability to sell oil internationally has resumed uh, and the use of glo global financial systems for trade um, but at the same time, the signing of this deal hasn't just opened the floodgates uh, irreversibly. Essentially, this deal only holds if Iran follows all of the rules uh, and, and everything completes everything it has agreed to do. Uh, specifically, if they break the deal, uh, whether it's in terms of third-party monitoring, inspection or verification, or just a general scale-back, uh, the deal has a, a, a snapback um, provision that allows the sanctions to be reapplied for another 10 years and the possibility of an extra five on top of that. So that's the situation now uh, in this idea of detente and general thawing of relations in Iran. Not all embargoes have been removed. There are, I think, some UN arms embargoes uh, and a UN ban on, in, on the import of ballistic missile technology, but uh, those remaining measures certainly pale in comparison to what Iran had originally been given. Yeah, so uh, looking at the background of those two uh, cases which we're focusing on today, Looking more generally, cases of detente have uh, gotten uh, mis sorry, mixed reactions. So let's talk about the kind of 
two main schools of thought on this. Uh, on one side of it, we have uh, people believing that this policy approach is, is a win-win solution because it's providing more productive, secure relationships. And um, these are the same people that would view sanctions as, as something that actually intensifies the security environment and acts as something that limits opportunities for change. Um, the same people would see detente as a, a form of success because it would be it spurs economic growth through trade and investment, and it's it builds that confidence between the two countries and uh, has that opportunity to create more positive political change. At the very least, in this camp of thought, um, detente is a new route for a possible success after a long period of diplomatic isolation. On the other side, however, um, people often see detente or this approach as kind of siding with the enemy. Uh, I'll quote uh, former foreign minister of Israel, Avigdor Lieberman, in saying, quote unquote, it's a total surrender to terror. <laughs> Uh, so people in this line of thought would, would see the so-called benefits of this approach as, as fairly unrealistic, um, a little bit inaccurate, and they would kind of view the, the agreements and negotiations that would go on with this approach as, as a legitimization of, of certain issues maybe that are up for discussion, like human rights issues, security issues that, that maybe the two countries don't agree on. And so they think it'll actually worsen these. Yeah, and I think on both sides, you have such passionate believers in both of those camps that you've outlined. And I think from an outsider, an outside perspective, in my mind, I think, okay, so which side is right? Uh, are both sides right to some degree? Uh, but it, more importantly, why? You know, what, what, what is the, the real accuracy of, 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 of the evidence on either side? Um, and I think more generally, if we look at kind of the, the trend here in, in detente in these two examples, uh, the timeliness of it, you know, we've gone decades, decades in Cuba and Iran of, of these really cool, um, cool relations. Why now? Why so close together? You know, what, what are the driving factors here? And, I, you know, there's a list of things that you can think of. Is it a changing political climate? Is it a shift away from conservative policies to more liberalized dem dem uh, diplomatic practices? Is it vested interests in a regime change, globalization, economics and trade? Is it a combination of all of them, some of them, none of them? Um, and more generally even still, what are the similarities between these two cases and what can we learn about the policy of detente and its effectiveness? Absolutely, Mitch. Those are all great things to take into consideration. So many factors to look at. And uh, yeah, one another thing to consider is just how do these two deals that we're focusing on today, what, what's the impact on the wider international community and let's say international relations as a whole? As you mentioned, it could be a change in political climate. So we have this warming of relations and this country-to-country -country cooperation. And an interesting contrast to that is what happened on Thursday. Uh, we have Brexit, so Britain separating from the EU. So that's another interesting thing to uh, look at when we're looking at the overall political climate and this kind of cooperation. Um, but yeah, we, you know what? Let's delve a little bit deeper here. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think that's a, that's a pretty good generalist yeah. approach to that. Um, so to, to dive a little bit deeper and to answer some of these questions that we've raised and explore some of these issues, we're, we're really privileged and honored to have with, uh, with us in the studio today Mr. Jeffrey Smith, uh, who is currently on loan, I guess you could say, to the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs uh, from McGill University. He's, he's here teaching a course on national security policy and law, which, among other things, uh, deals with nuclear security. Um, as a former Canadian naval officer and federal crown prosecutor, Mr. Smith served as international law counsel to the United Nations in East Timor during the country, country's transition to independence in 2002. Uh, and for the past several years, he served as the principal legal advisor, the Juris Consul, to the government in exile of the Saharawi people of Western Sahara, traveling routinely and writing about the Saharawi uh, refugee camps at Tindouf in Algeria. So, Mr. Smith, thank you for being here with us today. It's, uh, thank you for that kind introduction. It's great to be here with uh, both of you. Uh, it's uh, a fascinating uh, topic, uh, detente uh, then and now, and uh, we live in a complex world where um, 
it behooves us to study it. Yeah. And, and, and certainly in the practice of our profession, um, we're going to see more of it in some quite varied uh, and challenging ways. Excellent. Uh, so just to start off, kind of going back to the question I raised with, with many possible answers, the timeliness of detente towards Iran and Cuba in the current context. Why now? It's a good. It's a great question. Um, causation um, doesn't necessarily turn on correlation. The events are um, substantially uh, and likely significantly separate. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Other than, of course, the central actor of the United States, the United States government, uh, and the State Department, uh, having worked at both files or matters. Um, well, in the case of Cuba, uh, for decades, uh, literally, but certainly stretching back a number of years. The, the slender thread that I see, and the evidence th that is the connection between the two that I see, is something of a desire for a legacy project out of the Obama administration. And again, I caution the legacy is, uh, pardon me, the evidence of that uh, is very slender. There's been no you, you can't discern in State Department papers, official pronouncements, uh, the behavior of the various parties involved, um, a particular connection. Um, and there seems to be none overtly um, between uh, Latin America, Caribbean issue of longstanding and a problem, uh, as it were, that, that increasingly had a perception at least uh, and some materiality to it or substance in the Middle East that needed solving. So I would in diplomatic or governance terms, ascribe the connection um, uh, to legacy. But there's probably some subtle underlying uh, forces uh, at work there. Um, uh, cooperation of regional partners certainly has been key, and a desire to, um, generally among global north or western states, uh, to defuse tensions where they could be, given the urgency of other mat matters and um, uh, projects. Nice. So yeah, so you talked about uh, the possibility of uh, leaving a legacy um, as the Obama administration. So bringing it back to the Cuban Missile Crisis, mm. yeah, um, it seems that it was actually the possibility of annihilation that that brought uh, the motivation to work towards a detente with the Soviets. So this doesn't really seem to be the case today. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you think the significance was of Kennedy approaching the crisis through negotiation back then uh, versus a more direct confrontation in Cuba? Mm, that's a great question. And I thought your earlier description um, w was quite detailed, it quite helpfully uh, recalls the, the um, urgency of, of what that era uh, was. In, in effect, um, Gosh, in international relations terms, of course, we had the United States and the Soviet Union, as it then was, um, arguing about, um, arguing through a proxy, a newly created proxy, uh, the Republic of, of, of Cuba, in which the Soviet Union was perceived, perceived as having an overriding or a hegemonic uh, foreign affairs influence on, on the new regime, the relatively new regime um, uh, in, in Havana. There were, at the time, uh, in November 1962, October-November 1962, as the crisis um, culminated or, or came to peak, of course, a number of uh, elements of foreign affairs that were in play, including um, um, the threatened or ostensible use of force between the two principal, uh, between the two principal parties, uh, a blockade of Cuba, threatened use of conventional force uh, in respect of that blockade, and uh, and so on. So there was both diplomacy and and the threat of armed force, and then later, um, past the peak of the crisis, a reckoning that diplomatic efforts uh, had to be engaged in. And of course, as we now know, there was a tacit or a soft or an implicit bargain that nuclear weapons would not be stationed on, on the island of, of Cuba th thereafter. Was there a rapprochement, and I'm parsing uh, the history of this, I'm being a bit categorical, because it's helpful to approach it in these terms as we attempt to peel back the layers of what makes for rapprochement, how we understand it in, in general terms out of this uh, particular case study. Was there a rapprochement immediately thereafter, after the culmination of the crisis, towards 
the implicit bargain later in effect made good, but never in formal terms through a treaty or uh, any other kind of instrument or commitment of either state involved, particularly the Soviet Union. Was there a rapprochement implicitly, or did the implicit bargain later lead to or entail a rapprochement? It's a good question in terms of parsing it, and I think there's probably no right answer as you look at the history of it. Either is valid. I think um, the implicit climb down then engaged the Soviet Union and the United States in a number of other projects that, that would, a long number of years later into the 1970s, that would entail or set the basis, for example, the strategic um, arms reduction talks that led to uh, the START talks and ultimately the SALT talks of uh, the Reagan era in the 1980s. Um, there's some useful lessons around, uh, around that um, and how we view it. From a, from a reputational point of view um, now, with the situations in Cuba and, and Iran as well, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think. I, I think, from an outside perspective, that the U.S. has gone out on a limb uh, to a certain extent to, after so long, to, to pursue a policy of detente. What's, in your opinion, what's at risk here if, if things go south? The, the, in either in either in either country. Yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and it calls to mind um, some of the very basic tools um, states have in their international diplomacy, international relations uh, toolbox. How shall we proceed in the face of a problem? And that problem may be a threatening or gathering use of uh, a particular uh, armed force threat as nuclear weapons. And that's a common element, of course, of, of both uh, both instances or cases here, that apprehended or understood or feared uh, presence or locality or development or deployment of nuclear weapons. I'm choosing all of those mm -hmm. those words uh, somewhat carefully because each of them can be, uh, can be brought to bear. Um, but we, of course, um, know um, what some of those standard tools are, soft diplomacy, engagement of other states, a culmination of the matter in various uh, United Nations settings. Perhaps a matter is appropriate uh, for security uh, council discussion. Perhaps a softer, fuller approach uh, through a, what is inevitably longer diplomacy through the General Assembly is needed. Uh, perhaps a recourse to law as such. Uh, in its various forms has to be made. And then there's, in effect, engagement by negotiation that we call detente um, that, that, that has elements of um, a mutuality of discourse, of conversation, presumably done in good faith, that leads to a cooperative result. So your question is, what's at stake? Um, reputational loss. I would say particularly for domestic communities, mm. um, which tend to be strident, um, uh, tend to be... Um, sophisticated in the case of the United States uh, and divided along political and, and, and other lines. I think that's a, that's a first evident um, uh, challenge for this and the next uh, United States government administration. And I see that next administration after the November election, the January swearing in of whoever the president of the United States is, as being essentially tied or bound. Their, the, the administration's hands will be tied to the steering wheel. So a first answer to your question is there's a, there's a domestic risk um, that is particularly acute in southern United States, Florida, uh, when it comes to Cuba, um, which has a, a strong, uh, solid identity with the liberation of Cuba project, as, as we might call it. And it's somewhat more diffuse when it comes to um, an ostensibly nuclear-capable or nuclear-potential uh, Iran. So that's a sort of first mm -hmm. category. And then Evidently, we have an international aspect um, of, uh, well, reputational uh, image among states. I think, and this is my bias towards cooperation to, to engagement of states in the more uh, difficult problems of the age, um, that that risk is much less for the United States. I think the community of states, the organized international community, will tolerate backsliding or a partial failure. And of course, there's two ways to look at that. Regional entities and states, I would say in the case of Cuba, have, and I think the evidence of cl is clear, the uh, Inter-American Organization of States, for example, has applauded the Cuba uh, rapprochement, the, the 
tentative or preliminary easing of sanctions and establishment of relationships. It's making everyone's uh, cooperative international diplomacy uh, easier. And of course, mm -hmm. now we have some other problems in the region, not least of which is uh, Venezuela and yeah. its economy and social order. Uh, we can then compare and contrast the regional response to rapprochement in the Middle East, where that response has been uh, at best quite divided, and among mainline Arab states, particularly led by Saudi Arabia, um, has been uh, critical of it, and therefore there's uh, potentially a reputational loss. I would say in both instances, the wider international community has applauded these um, has applauded both instances as useful breakthroughs. They seem to contribute to economic development, uh, potentially to re regime change or evolution, uh, and the happier, useful byproduct of um, uh, a progressive development of human rights and a restoration of trade and an easing of tensions, particularly in the greater Middle East. Great. So, yeah, you touched a little bit on the possibility of backsliding, and Mitch was asking about the possibility of things going south. So kind of narrowing in on the Iran deal, um, one thing they have there to kind of quell concerns of, of Iran not complying, especially with the uh, nuclear, um, their nuclear obligations for their program, mm. they have this kind of snapback mechanism for the quick return to sanctions if there is this kind mm. of non-compliance. Mm. So... In your opinion, do you think these this mechanism, do these mechanisms have any teeth, or like how effective do you mm. think they'll be in building public and political confidence in this deal? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, it remains to be seen how yes. effective they are, and I'm <laughs> avoiding your answer. I'm escaping <laughs> it, and I need I need to, and I will I will give you that uh, that answer. But I need to say um, that it's a very innovative agreement the totality of it, the text of it alone as a, as a legal instrument is a fascinating read. There's nothing else like it, certainly when it comes to uh, nuclear security um, and generally in the engagement of states or community of states uh, around um, the reduction in uh, the development of armed force in a state of concern. That sounds a bit perhaps clumsy, but you can map those words over to the current problem of North Korea, either by its conventional posture or by its existing uh, nuclear posture. It's a fascinating agreement. The text of it um, is well worth reading and getting into. Um, the other thing that's, that's quite compelling about it is the complex negotiation process. In the face of a looming deadline, um, effectively last year in the first half of uh, 2015, and how the negotiations with a number of states were carried out. Great credit is due to the United States as one of five permanent Security Council members, uh, but heavy lifting on a number of issues uh, was done by the P5, the permanent five, plus Germany, plus the European Union, and of course plus Iran, right? It's sort of P5 plus plus three, if you like, <laughs> is the better way to, um, uh, the, the more accurate way to describe it. Um, the snapback um, provision in which there will automatically, without recourse to a superintending uh, UN Charter Part 7 Acting Security Council, um, is innovative in that it removes, of course, as we know, um, a decision-making to reimpose sanctions should Iran fail in its commitments, should it hold on to too much nuclear material or begin to reacquire it? Um, should it begin to acquire the necessary um, technology to enrich uranium uh, into weapons-grade um, um, uh, weapons mass or, or percentage? Um, should it uh, restart nuclear facilities? And critically, um, should it um, withhold cooperation or refuse to or block um, um, the inspection oversight of the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency. So the innovative thing about the snapback provision is that where a third party, the IAEA, uh, demonstrably finds evidence in any one of these categories of a failure to comply over the 10 years of the agreement, those sanctions must come back on. So it's an innovative provision. Um, it ties everyone's hands to the steering wheel. Um, 
in, in a way that there's no further politicking, particularly in, uh, in the Security Council among the permanent five members. But then we have to ask, what are sanctions? And how will the willingness of the sanctions-imposing states, for example, the European Union, shift or evolve over time? Could Iran move closer to, say, acquiring the right kind of nuclear material near the end of agreement, uh, the agreement or technology near the term of the agreement in a time when um, the sanctions regime is long forgotten and there's a new trade and uh, relations imperative. Um, that's the risk, and that's been uh, hotly criticized in some quarters. Um, lots to talk about. Uh, again, I, I want to stay on this 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 focus on kind of the the implications the american implications for or the implications for Amer the united states of america based on this policy of detente and um politically militarily what what has been the effect in your estimation what has been the effect of this policy of detente for the united states has it has it made it a stronger state politically militarily has it in some some manner reduced its strength? Has it had no effect? Th those are great questions. I would say, um, viewed globally, uh, my view is that these are working for the United States. Uh, the United States is rightly or wrongly perceived as a hegemon uh, in many quarters, um, exercises other foreign policy and military um, options or approaches uh, in a number of other regions, not least the Middle East. Middle East. Um, this is a useful leavening or um, counter study uh, to that in both instances, Cuba and Iran. I th I, my view is that uh, it's done nothing but good a year on, a year and a half on, in the case of USA, Cuba. Uh, these things seem to be holding. Um, that's uh, contributing to a reputational legitimacy that um, every state can use, and I think critically um, at, at this point in history, particularly given the seriousness of the Middle East conflict and the refugee migrant flow uh, into Europe that the United States helpfully can use. Well, great. Uh, I think uh, we're going to change gears, but before that, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Um, and we'll be back with uh, more about uh, Policy of Détente with Mr. Jeffrey Smith. listening to Policy Talks, recorded at CKCU 93.1 FM. For more, go to www.policytalkspodcast.com. Welcome back to Policy Talks. Uh, I'm Mitch. I'm joined in the studio with my co-host, uh, my partner in crime, Mel. Thank you. And uh, we have today uh, with us Mr. Jeffrey Smith, and we're talking about the policy of detente and the developments in the international context. Um, so before we went to break, we were talking uh, the context of both the cases in Cuba and Iran, uh, and specifically how that was going to or, or currently impacting uh, the situation in the United States. Uh, and um, just as we were going to break, a, a member of our research team uh, suggested that maybe uh, for, 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 for those of you listening at home, we could talk a little bit more about kind of the nuts and bolts mechanisms uh, involved in the Iran deal. Specifically, you know, we've talked about as part of this deal, Iran is going to scale back its nuclear, its nuclear program. It's going to submit to monitoring and things like that. But what, what, is, what is the actual monitoring mechanisms that are in place? What, how, how are these, these, these procedures going to be measured and monitored? Mm, that's a great. That's a great question, and it, it's essentially uh, the crux or the um, the lever by which uh, it will uh, work. In effect, how do we enforce 
uh, on the ground? How do we monitor? Uh, there's, there's a direct prescription uh, in, the, in the agreement, the JCPOA, in which the United, uh, sorry, in which the International Atomic Energy Agency um, has a broad and quite intrusive remit um, to inspect the removal of materials, um, um, the assurance of a single site uh, ostensibly for nuclear research uh, and other performance, including without notice uh, type, type inspections. That's essentially the formal mechanism uh, for compliance, for monitoring toward compliance. There is, as there always is in these cases, and this brings us back, um, if you will, to the United States um, unilateralism in enforcing a nuclear-free Cuba, um, uh, a military or otherwise uh, single-state monitoring function uh, that no other country possesses, like the United States. The ability to monitor from a distance satellite uh, imagery, human intelligence, or through signals intelligence, um, we can comprehend the broad dimensions, the, the degree of intrusiveness of that, um, ha -ha, ha, if you will, thanks to such things as uh, WikiLeaks and uh, the Snowden Papers. Uh, we, we can comprehend that the United States has a singular ability to corroborate, um, perhaps um, from moment to moment to even get ahead of the IAEA in this. And we can be assured the United States uh, will rely on that to the extent that it discloses it uh, to the other agreement partners. Well, that uh, remains to be seen. This is an informal or uh, extra to agreement uh, capacity. All right. Let's, uh, let's turn to Canada for a moment mm -hmm. and uh, talk about how we as a country never ended up cutting off diplomatic ties with Cuba uh, following the Cuban Revolution. Mm -hmm. So that made it just Canada and Mexico who were the only two in the hemisphere not to do so. Mm. So we've clearly seen a change in how Canada is dealing with this situation when we're looking at the Iran context. Um, how does this approach of Canadian engagement with Iran fit what uh, Foreign Minister Stéphane Dion said about the broader strategy of Canadian responsible conviction? Mm. That's a, yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And sorry, <laughs> do you think that we would have seen a similar response from our previous government, or do you think it's uh, in alignment with the international context? Do you think it's it's mm. reflecting truly a kind of new outlook for Canadian mm. foreign policy, kind of with what you were saying mm. about leaving a, a legacy, uh, according to the administration? Mm. Those, are, those are great questions. Um, the Canadian role in both, uh, in both, agree both recent agreements is fascinating. It's, it's much more uh, in the background, as it were, supporting our soft diplomacy role when it came to Iran because of the, the um, um, significant engagement of the European Union, and in effect, what was comprehended or understood as, um, for some months before the JCPOA, as regards Iran, as a consensus in the Security Council. Canada, in other words, did not have to do a great deal of heavy lifting or overt support uh, in the face of that. And yet, both cases, Iran and Cuba, um, um, reveal a kind of split or a dichotomy in Canadian foreign affairs, in the approach to foreign affairs to objectionable or human rights objectionable uh, re regimes in that Canada, we should remember, uh, was a helping, a helpful go-between in the United States with Cuba in, in that regime. That speaks to Canada, the utility of Canada's historic role, which I think we can be assured has played out from moment to moment uh, together with some other hemispheric partners, when the United States um, needed to deal with Cuban-related issues. And that certainly bore fruit more recently. Then, in stark contrast to that, you have a continuing, well, policy, or at least an expression of commitment, uh, of wariness, of not fully engaging the Islamic Republic of Iran um, un until we see the proof of its good faith um, by IAEA reported reductions. We have not yet restored diplomatic relations. And my prediction is it's um, likely into 2017 at this pace. So 
I think it's I'm a little hesitant at how I wanted to 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 approach what I'd like to ask because it's such a anything related to international relations it's so nuanced and there's you it's so context driven but but essentially when you get down to nuts and bolts of of this issue uh there are there appears to be diverging approaches you know there's the approach of the the carrot or the stick you know uh, cutting off ties or some degree of detente uh and possibly rapprochement um, in in your opinion, what what do you consider to be the most effective? Is there is there one answer to the most effective strategy? How how much is the approach dependent on your target country? Um, that, that's a, that's a great question. Um, gosh, it it both evolves over time, and no no specific approach can be should be commended or uh, indeed even emphasized. Um, we need to remember at every turn that um, the organized international community, really the community of states as such, um, and the leading international organizations, the United States, the United Nations, pardon me, uh, among them, um, work on consensus, consensus uh, commitment that entails cooperation. So I guess if you have a prescription, anything that fosters mutuality of interest, good faith, um, discourse or dialogue that then results in tangible cooperation to the resolution of a common problem is a good thing. And there's a place for armed force in that. Uh, earlier in your introductory comments, uh, you mentioned Turkey-Israel. It's a fascinating case. And we haven't seen enough com um, commentary, we will in the days to come, about the latest rapprochement and agreement about how what was a carefully arrived at um, relationship uh, through the 1990s and the early 2000s fell apart um, uh, um, over, the, over the fiasco of the Gaza relief flotilla. Um, there have been a number of foreign policy uh, instruments in play between both countries over the six years of their break in political um, and otherwise of cooperative um, relations with some implications for other problems uh, in, in the Middle East. There's no right mix uh, how we would engage Zimbabwe over specific local, political, democratic, and human rights issues seemingly confined to that country. No country is an island. There are regional problems uh, we should be aware of uh, with Zimbabwe. It is entirely different, uh, for example, with uh, an objectionable regime, uh, say, in Southeast Asia. Right, and... Uh so speaking of the Turkey-Israel relations and obviously the two case studies we are covering today, do you see this as all these happenings as kind of this global shift in international cooperation? I know we mentioned a factor to consider is also the occurrence of Brexit, which happened mm. last week. But mm. is there overall kind of a shift in this warming of relations we could say, between the U.S. and Iran and Cuba today, or just mm. generally? The, uh, gosh, that's another great question, uh, Mel, and I should answer it on two levels. And, uh, and declare my bias, I'm an optimist um, um, for the, the progress of international cooperation. I think, I think we've got bright spots, notwithstanding significant human security challenges. We've got a number of bright spots um, uh, worldwide when it comes to trade, economy, human security, regional peace and stability. We don't hear a great deal, for example, out of Latin America, South America. There's fabulous things happening with trade, uh, democratic governance on, on that continent, right? A new, a new government, very progressive president in Argentina and a number of other things, right? Let's not allow a political crisis and some other issues in Brazil to suggest uh, we haven't gone forward if I can put it in those terms, in, in Latin America, uh, in so many areas, um, both the necessity of cooperation and a sophistication of approaches to it is bearing fruit. And yet, we have uh, acute uh, areas of conflict. Um, we needed a win collectively, the international community, when it came to Iran. We needed uh, a more 
peaceful, less threatening Iran objectively, and we needed to take some of the, the steam or the pressure, the heat out of Iran's relationship with its Sunni Arab allies, notably Saudi Arabia, given the other problems uh, in the region. I think this has contributed to it. The, the intensity I, around Iran, and frankly, a more economically prosperous Iran, uh, with a youth, youthful population that is that it has, that it needs domestically to engage, uh, is in our interest. I think study after study, and there's been some uh, fascinating stuff in the last uh, number of months, suggests that uh, nation states move or evolve their regimes more towards democracy and have less domestic and international um, security threats coming from them with more robust economies. Um, and, I, I, and, and so I think that's a happy byproduct for Iran. There's, um, it, it will take time uh, to move along to a, to a notion or an acceptable level, whatever that is, and we're looking at, at it through a normative Western global north. We're looking at it from uh, this perspective of where we sit, so there's all kinds of biases with that. Um, uh, but there's nothing uh, in the early going that should be good for Iran itself, and a peaceful, prosperous Iran is, um, like all countries, one less threatening, um, one that's less threatening in its neighborhood. So what would you say then to critics on the political right? So everything that you've, you've just said, how would you assuage those in the political right that throw up their arms and say, and it's not just the political right, I shouldn't generalize, but many on the political right who throw up their arms and say that, you know, detente in Cuba is, 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 is a bad policy to approach, this Iran deal is a bad deal mm. to sign. What would you, what would you say to, to those concerns, given what you just said about... Mm about some of the positive aspects. Um, the, the, I, I think those concerns can never be uh, denied or, or explained away. It's easy enough to give um, simplistic answers along the lines of, well, we've tried a policy of confrontation or containment or isolation, a sanctions regime, all of those prescriptions, um, and they haven't worked. It was time for something new. I think that, that sort of answer lacks sophistication, merely because A, worse does not mean that we should embark uh, uh, upon B, I would say in the case of Cuba that we f we had seen signs within Cuba of a very slow progress towards liberalization in terms of dem democratic or responsiveness, at least, uh, of government and, and the movement towards more of a culture of human rights. In the end, I think we can be confident that there will be if that's uh, what the right would want or concerned commentators would want, an evolution away from a regime of personality that Cuba has been uh, through the Castro uh, brothers or, or Castro, Castro family. Moreover, Latin America surely has an instructive or, if you will, pedagogical effect. Cuba looks uh, and has significant deep ties uh, with a, a progressively democratizing and governmentally accountable uh, Latin America that itself has had some influence. So we can be confident of a march towards evolution and indeed something of a kind of regime change when the Castro era uh, passes. The stability of the country, the readiness for that, um, the capacity of government to evolve, well, those are challenges as they are in any um, uh, state that loses an ancien regime. Spain in 1975 after Franco, Portugal in 1974 as a result of the Carnation Revolution saw both those states um, with very autocratic forms of government um, uh, face challenges over the next decades in terms of their evolution. That will be true certainly of Cuba. Iran um, is entirely different at much more of a greater remove with much greater regional pressures. The, the, I, I suspect the engagement with Iran will be through second parties, notably Germany as a, as a um, strong diplomatic player, um, anxious to have a very full, deep relation uh, with, with the uh, Islamic Republic and the European Union uh, as well. The wild card in Iran is a youthful population, um, um, a governance structure that is very opaque that we don't uh, fully understand, um, and of course, regional, uh, significant regional problems uh, next door in Iraq and of course, Syria. Great. Well, uh, 
Those are some great insights into this uh, very interesting topic that we're covering today. I think we're up for time uh, for today's podcast. So we'd like to thank you, Dr. Smith, for joining us for this conversation. Absolutely. Um, some of the insight that you provided, I think, is 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 excellent. And I makes me think about uh, the week before last, I had a chance to hear the Minister of Foreign Affairs speak and, mm. you know, politicians ministers they, they, there's a lot of information that 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 they they have to process but he did say one line he said engagement does not mean agreement uh, and I think that more than anything else stuck with me and if, if you visualize all the world all the countries of the world sitting at a table in my mind it makes sense if you don't agree with with something that's being happening you're more effective sitting at the table with them trying to move the needle having a having an open discussion than sitting in the corner with your arms crossed you know, sticking to your to your convictions without any kind of, um, of of action on that. Again, my perspective, but um, yeah, I think this 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 topic is is incredibly important. I think more and more moving forward, we might see uh, we might see more in terms of a policy of detente. Yeah, absolutely, and I couldn't agree more, Mitch. I was uh, definitely when looking over this uh, topic, uh, sitting at the table is is what gets you or what furthers your interest, as we can kind of see it in terms of what's happening now. Um, so yeah, thank you for listening to our third episode of Policy Talks. Stay tuned for another episode with Josh Beanlands and Nicole Halseth. Remember to visit us at policytalkspodcast.com and on Twitter at policytalkspod for updates and related content. And before we uh, sign off tonight, I think it's important for, for us to recognize the people behind the scenes who uh, more often than not do the heavy lifting. So specifically, Mark Hyken, Devin Walanius, Shatta Ali, Jackie Ruezga, and of course, our wonderful producer, Joe Venkatesh. Uh, spread the word. You know, Mel gave you the website, gave you the, the Twitter handle. Tweet at us if there's an interesting topic you want us to talk about on this show. Let us know. We're always open to suggestions. Uh, and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Mitch. And I'm Mel. This is Policy Talks. Yeah, uh, it's uh, detente, rapprochement, a lot of these French terms. Are